You're listening to Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Humane Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's Canada Day, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 137 of Defender Radio. To celebrate the 147th birthday of our great nation, we're bringing you the best of beavers from Defender Radio's first season. You'll hear from some world-renowned experts, filmmakers, and even some of APFA's own staffers in this look back, along with a couple of new clips from our friends who love beavers too. Let's get started with Dr. Mark Beckoff, who briefly shared with us his thoughts on how beavers react when persecuted through trapping. From the familial point of view, I would have to say that yes, you know, they're very important. They're, they're very social. Um, they, you know, they live in family groups. And as far as I know, they, um, they would miss one another and grieve just like we do. Next is our friend, Dr. Heidi Perryman of Worthadam at martinezbeavers.org. You and I have spoken before about your work in Martinez. Um, but uh, why don't you give us the, the quick rundown of how you came to be involved with beavers? So um, I actually don't have a beaver background or a biology background at all. I'm a psychologist. And I became interested when some beavers moved into our creek in the middle of town. And I started filming them just because I thought they were cool. And um, then the city announced they were going to kill them because they were afraid they would cause flooding. And people got pretty involved. I mean, these beavers were very easy to see. So all the children on the way to school, all the lawyers on the way to the courtroom, they could all see these beavers. And there was pretty massive public outcry. And the city decided, okay, we won't kill them. We will install uh, a flow device. So we hired Skip Lyle from Vermont, and he put in a flow device that controlled pond height. And that was seven years ago. And there have not been any problems since then? There has not been any problems since then, but what we have seen is that our creek is much richer. It has much more wildlife. We have identified nine new species of birds and fish that are in the area because of the beavers, and we have a yearly beaver festival. So um, it's been great, and uh, we've had eight years of kits being born in Martinez, and our population right now is six except for there are new kids, but we don't know how many. Somebody filmed one in the middle of the night, so we're waiting for any day to find out what the new family brings. Well, that's very exciting. It's always great to see the little ones in the springtime and early summer. Yeah, they're just adorable. And the thing I love most about the young ones is that they vocalize a lot, so you hear them whining a lot when you when they're talking to their parents or to each other and it's really endearing excellent i guess uh you have seen firsthand the ecological benefits we talk about yeah is that something that a lot of people were aware of when you first started getting involved with the campaign to protect the beavers were did people Um, realize that I don't think, I mean, I don't think that's how it started. That's not why people cared about them. They just cared about them because they could see them. But um, I do think that a lot more people than just myself 
in Martinez did research and realized beavers are very good for the health of streams. They're do, they're really good for the health of wildlife. They're even good for the populations of birds because their chewing of trees produces this bush and dense regrowth. And, um, and so the population of migratory and songbirds goes up. So beavers are kind of um, an all-around winner, and uh, people really got interested in that. All right, and that, I think, leads nicely into your involvement with the film project, The Beaver Believers, which you actually were the first one to send to me, and, and since that time, we are now listed as a corporate sponsor and are heavily backing the film in a number of ways. Um, so why don't you uh, share with us a bit about your experience getting involved with that project? Right. Well, I think it's a really exciting project. They are interested particularly in the way beavers can be a tool in um, restoring watersheds for getting getting through climate change as it's going to happen. And pretty much governmentally, not much is going to solve it. Um, and uh, I, I think it's a really exciting project. They came down to um, California last year all the crew and they filmed at the beaver festival and they helped us with the festival so um that was a, a really delightful way to kind of show martinez that what we were doing was a big deal but also to um show them that beavers make a difference not just in uh wildlife settings or far far upstream they actually can make a change in an urban setting and i think that was really important to them what i would wonder then is what do you expect people to be getting out of that film and as a whole I, there there is a big resurgence in the interest in the beavers uh, i mean we're seeing that across canada uh people saying well, we want to get rid of them, but when I looked them up, I saw this interesting stuff. So what do you think we might be seeing in the next several years in terms of how people perceive beavers and how they will play a role in our lives? Right. Well, I think um, uh, I think in the next couple of years, my, I'm hopeful that the influence of Jerry Osborne's documentary, Canadian documentary about beavers last that was released two years ago, it will continue to make a difference in Canada and um, that, it, that it will um, co, you know, co-evolve the way people think about beavers in, 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 you know, America as we kind of understand the fact that um, the places that we have that are most concerned about water loss are actually the places that do the most um, beaver trapping. It's kind of amazing. If you could look at a map of all of the United States and see what areas are affected by drought and overlay that map with another map about the number of regional municipalities that kill beavers, you would be stunned by how much they're related. So why why not think of these not as beavers but as water savers and realize that every time we trap them out, we're impacting our own futures. What's the one thing about beavers that most people don't know that you think they should know, particularly in Canada since the beaver is our national emblem? I, 
I, I mean, I have all kinds of facts about beavers that I really love. I think they're very engaging. I think there are some things that are really persuasive to wildlife lovers. But honestly, the most important fact I would relay is that the challenges beavers cause are solvable. Anybody who's smarter than a beaver can implement those challenges for a very low fee. And there's a trickle-down benefit. If you have beavers in your area, you're going to have all kinds of wildlife. You're going to have um, higher water tables. You're going to have purer water. And there are really reasons to do this right. Adrian Nelson, the resident beaver expert at APFA, explained in an interview how our Living with Wildlife Beavers program began and why we're still at it. Uh, let's start out at the beginning. How did the program develop for APFA? Uh, the program actually developed long before I was there. Um, this program developed sort of back in the days of, of George and Bunty. Um, when there was quite a few communities here locally that were trapping and killing beavers uh, quite regularly. Um, and obviously this sort of upset the association at the time. And they went out and started to look for alternatives. And there were some individuals out of the States that were doing these flow devices, these beaver deceivers and pond levelers and things like that. And, uh, you know, they, they started to promote those devices up here. Um, unfortunately, at the time, we weren't able to really get in and, and do these devices ourselves. So when I came on board, we started implementing these devices into communities here locally. Um, and it just kind of caught on like wildfire. We've been all across Canada now uh, installing beaver flow devices. Uh, what, what kind of reaction? has there been to the implementation of the devices? I mean, you go in, and I know a lot of people are kind of naysayers about the whole bits, but uh, once they're actually in, what kind of reaction do you get? You know what? It's There's kind of a, a three-phase reaction that I get when I go into most municipalities. Uh, first, it's this, well, I don't see these things working. You don't understand our beavers here. You know, this is nothing more than a pipe and some fence. You know, I, I don't see this. And then as I'm building it and explaining it, I usually get the... Well, I can see the logic behind this, but I don't see it working here. I don't see how this is going to work. And by the end of it, it's usually, you know, I think these could really do the trick. <laughs> uh, it's quite neat. And then we usually, you know, I'll usually hear a year or two later. Sometimes I won't even hear. I'll, you know, be wandering back through a municipality for another reason, and, and I'll see flow devices all over the place that they've just kind of constructed on their own, uh, which is great. To, you know, that's really the, the, the whole um goal of the program is to empower other people on how to build these so that they can do the themselves and they can save money and, and save our environment and save beavers at the same time. And uh, can you give us the, the quick sort of overhead view of how all of these things work? Well, basically we have two devices sort of that we put in on a regular basis. We have what's called an exclusion fence and a pond leveler. Um, the exclusion fence really is used in culverts and things like that where we basically need to prevent the beaver from accessing the, the culvert. And it's more or less a glorified fence that goes in front of the culvert and keeps the beaver out. Um, now, there's some, some technical things behind it that make it work, um, but it really is just a glorified fence. And with the pond leveler, it's really just a pipe that goes through the... the um, uh, the beaver dam and allows water to come through the beaver dam. 
Um, again, there's you know some little tricks that we use on, on these devices to to keep the beavers from messing with them, but it really is nothing more than a pipe that allows water to flow through and a fence to keep beavers out from where we want them. Why don't we just relocate them? Why isn't that the first step that we take when dealing with these issues? Relocation isn't usually a great option. Um, for one, the the beaver is there for a particular reason. They're there either for a food source, uh, a good habitat, um, whatever it is. Until we address that underlying issue, we're going to continue to have more beavers coming in. So it's really just an endless cycle of, of relocating beavers. Uh, the other thing, too, is that when beavers move into a new area, uh, that's when we tend to see a lot of the large trees starting to go down. Um, beavers want to set up a large dam. They want to set up a large lodge. Um, and they need a lot of material in order to do that. And that's generally when we see a lot of that uh, big destruction happening. As the colony gets established, they don't have the need for that big material as much anymore. Um, and quite happily will sustain themselves on that new growth that's coming in, um, the roots, berries, things like that, rather than going after these old, big, dead trees. Um, so by removing those beavers constantly, we're inviting new beavers to come in and do their renos and drop more big trees, and we end up getting more destruction this way. Um, and we, we really don't solve the problem. We're just continuing this, this endless cycle. Okay, and we're going to be, uh, you and I are going to be touring southern Ontario up to northern Ontario uh, in the coming weeks. We're actually going to be going to a few municipalities. Uh, why don't you tell everybody a bit about what this trip is going to involve for us? Yeah, this is a really unique trip. It's a, it's a bit of a whirlwind trip for us. Um, we're hitting uh, quite a few different municipalities on this. Uh, and we're going to be doing a combination of things. We've got some municipalities that are, are already on board. They're, they're very eager to put these flow devices in place. So we're going to be doing some staff training to show these municipalities how to build them and how to implement them. Um, and we've got other municipalities that have never really heard about them that much or have heard about them in a very limited sense. So they want a little more information. They want us to come out and, and teach them about these devices, why they work, uh, and, and then start to look at how they can implement these in their own community. So it's going to be really unique. It's, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of work, uh, but it's really neat to get out and be able to visit so many communities at once and be able to spread this message and, and provide real non-lethal alternatives that work. One of the things we often deal with, uh, you and I both, is people saying, how can I get involved? Now, for something like this, it's going to be a lot of meetings and a lot of sort of site visits and things like that for you and I. So how can our volunteers and supporters and the listeners of this program get involved in our work on this Beaver campaign? Well, obviously, you know, we're, we're always in need of support. We're always in need of financial support in order to get these campaigns running, um, to pay for materials, uh, pay for travel expenses so that we can talk to these municipalities. Um, but more so than that, too, we just we need to spread the word out to every community across Canada that there are these alternatives. Um, and I think it's very important that people ask their city what their beaver management plan is, what do they do for beavers in their town, and see if they can find a city staff person or a, or a council member that's eager to listen to some of these alternatives uh, and, and present some of these alternatives to them. Um, everything is available, you know, obviously on our website at forbeardefenders.com, um, and, and they can present that material to their own city uh, and see if we can get these devices in there. 
Find out more about our beaver campaign and how you can donate to help us at FurBearDefenders.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Furbearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at furbearerdefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our furbearing friends. You're listening to Defender Radio. We're back celebrating Canada Day with the animal of our heritage, the beaver. Let's go now to Sarah Konigsberg, the producer of the Beaver Believers Film Project. You've got a background in film, uh, primarily environmental type projects. How did you get involved in all of that? Okay, well, if we back up about 15 years, um, I actually came to Walla Walla for the first time to be a student at Whitman College. And I was an environmental studies and politics major and very interested in the the way that people perceive and engage in the environmental issues. So both the science of the issues, but even more than that, what makes people care, what makes people not care, what makes people get involved, what leads to change on the ground versus what lets a problem just get totally tied up in argumentation and not uh, the Klamath Basin in Oregon, the big water crisis revolving around dams and the sucker fish was going on at that time. The arguments about whether or not to breach the four lower Snake River dams was going on at that time. The spotted owl controversy had just happened. Uh, and so my senior year, working on my thesis, wrapping everything up, and we started studying place-based collaboratives in the West, where basically disparate groups all had very strong opinions, didn't agree with each other, 
but something got so bad that they finally realized they had to come together and talk to each other. Maybe it was just that their hatred of the federal management agencies was so strong. They figured they had to get together and talk. But anyway, they would come together face to face and start listening to each other and actually engaging and hearing and sharing stories. And they would be able to come up with, with a lot of work and a lot of you know effort, but they would come up with strategies to actually make a decision and then move forward. Oftentimes, it would be combining different groupings of knowledge, the scientific community's knowledge, the rancher's knowledge, the Native American's knowledge, but they would actually get something done. And so this notion of storytelling, bringing people together, really captivated me. And kind of as an accident, just as one more filler class, I had taken a little history of cinema class that year. And something clicked, and I realized documentary film. What better way to combine the science, the policy, but also these really human narratives of why we care about land and place and our natural resources and our way of life. And I just decided, all right, that's what I want to do. And I've been working towards it ever since. Outstanding. And I guess something that I find very curious is someone with this environmental background, um, you, you decided to look at beavers, and this is something <laughs> – well, no, because a lot of people view beavers, even those in the scientific community, um, while there seems to be this one hemisphere that recognizes their importance as a keystone species, as nature's engineers, there's still a lot of people who think they're just a nuisance animal that needs to be managed. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you sort of get into looking at beavers as a project – it, as a whole, because this this film is not just about one little issue. It seems to me to be a very large uh, concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so again, let me back up a bit. Uh, there is a program out of Whitman College called Semester in the West. And my professor back at the time and my friend and colleague now, Phil Brick, he developed this program. It first ran in 2002. And it is an entire semester of camping on public land, traveling the eight to 10 states of the West, learning about public land issues, water resources, land management, grazing, timber harvesting, water, Native American issues, energy issues. The students start here in Walla Walla, Wallowa County in Oregon, and just sort of wiggle and flow their way all the way down, ending with work in the Colorado River Delta area down on the border. Um, so this program runs every other year and has since 2002. And I then, uh, rejoined the program starting in 2008 to teach the students photography and actually their final project is a podcast. (laughs) Ah. Um, so I've been working with them for the last three programs, eight, 10 and 12. Uh, and they interview people and audio record and video record all semester long and then put together podcasts that try to delve into again, these issues. Um, so at the end of the 2012 program, Phil was collecting students' journals and sort of seeing what they thought of the whole semester. And one student, Issa Diaz, she had written, I just think it is amazing that the four most inspirational, powerful, successful women we met on this whole semester were all working in the same thing, beaver. And that clicked the light bulb for Phil. Whoa, 
That is a good point. That is a fabulous story. And thus the name, The Beaver Believers, and it was originally just going to be about these four women, uh, was born. And those four women were Mary O'Brien, who's a botanist with the Grand Canyon Trust, Suzanne Fowdy, who's a hydrologist with the Willow with the National Forest, Sherry Tippy, who is a live trapper in Denver, Colorado, and Valer Austin, who has land in both Arizona and Sonora, Mexico, who doesn't have beavers yet, but she's working building gabions and chinchettas and different uh, water catchment devices that sort of mimic what beaver dams do, trying to bring the desert back to life. So that is where the story was born. And then Phil approached me saying, hey, would you like to collaborate on this project? He's, he had the idea. He knows the people. He has the background and the issues. And then I was the filmmaker. And we decided, okay, let's do this. So we started working on it last winter, applying for our first grants and starting to pull it forward. And what have you, what have you learned that surprised you? Because um, even someone who has uh, an extensive education like yourself, being on the ground talking with these people. Oh, it's you... been incredible. <laughs> 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 I never thought I would know this much about beavers. And frankly, I didn't know anything about them before we started this film. I thought it would just be this fun excuse to go on a road trip, meet some new people, talk about, oh, you know, watershed restoration, that's important. Um, I had no idea how much beaver would come to infiltrate every corner of my life. <laughs> it's it's really amazing because I guess what we say is our film is both about beaver, but it's also about, you know, the most fundamental thing we need in life, which is water and kind of the biggest um, challenge we've ever faced as a human species, which is climate change and how rapidly the world as we know it is changing. You know, the very mechanisms by which our systems flow and function are changing. Um, yeah. I don't know what, what more details do you want about the beavers than in that? Um, well, that, what I find interesting is every time like, – I, I did not know a lot about beavers before I started my job. My specialty mm -hmm. and interest has always been um, in mesopredators and carnivores. Uh, mm. Coyotes, skunks, raccoons, uh, things like that are really what grabbed me originally. And I've learned way more than I ever thought would be possible – uh, about beavers as well. Uh, we were actually just on a road trip to northern Ontario, which is a very rural part of the province. And uh, we installed some flow devices to protect beavers in one location, met with several mm -hmm. municipalities. And every time we meet with someone, and our beaver expert, Adrian Nelson, starts talking about beavers, you can see people kind of light up as they learn that there is so much more to this animal than they ever thought possible. Uh, I guess what was the the moment for you when it find like I again you you clearly have an understanding of the ecosystem and biodiversity, but when you really started to see the beavers in a different light, was there a light bulb moment? Absolutely. Uh, the first light bulb moment was when uh, talking with Suzanne Saudi, the hydrologist, and she relayed the story um, of her aha moment, uh, and it's the story of the fact that. Beaver were in every watershed across the West. And I don't know as much about them in the East, but I imagine it's, it's similar. But in the West, you know, with the westward expansion and the fur trapping back in Hudson Bay Company times, previous to that, beaver had been in every single watershed, something like every half mile of stream there would have been a beaver dam. 
And the Hudson Bay Company recognized that beaver pelts were the currency in the West. And so the French were coming in, Hudson Bay Company, America, this big fight over land and who's going to get the Northwest Territory. They sent out their trappers. It was basically the first act of ecological warfare. They said, beaver pelts are the currency, exterminate them. We want you to completely eradicate this species to make that land worthless so that then we can get it. And there's trappers' journals where they're depicting that they're destroying those watersheds. Even at that time, they could see streams were starting to downcut, water was dropping underground, drying up, and they, they could just tell, we are destroying these ecosystems. So by the time, you know, settlers come in, by the time we have cameras, by the time we start doing scientific documentation, our entire conception of what does a healthy stream look like I mean, it, it had so drastically changed, we don't even know what a healthy stream looks like. So when we're doing all of this restoration and we're making all of these assumptions about what are healthy ecosystems, what are ecosystems that have function, you know, forget aesthetic, but to have function, ecosystem function, we have altered it so drastically by removing beaver. We don't even know how many of our current problems are purely because of the loss of beaver. And so realizing it's not that we have some newfangled idea now, like, oh, let's drop in this critter and see what happens. It's basically like, oh my gosh, we have broken this system with our arrogance and our trapping. We have got to put that piece back for there to be any hope that these lands can get back into a circle of function that can sustain itself and not just continue to get drier and drier and have our streams downcut even further and, you know, all of our wetlands disappear. So learning that was huge. It just dropped my jaw. It was one of those moments of realizing that we as a species have done such damage in such ignorance that we don't even, we can't even fathom how huge it is. And that's what I really realized. Okay. Yes, it's about beaver. But it's so much more, it's the perfect example of this, this idea that we can't just come in and pick and choose. Oh, I want this piece, but I don't want that piece. Like, no, everything evolved for tens of thousands of years since the last ice age with all of these pieces in place. Our only hope is to put as many of those pieces back and try to let these lands function again the way they evolved with all of those intricate relationships. What do you expect people will be able to take away from this film? Um, I would imagine a lot of the people who are going to see it are going to be interested in the environment, in animal welfare, but you're also going to get a lot of people who just think it sounds interesting. Um, what is your sort of dream result of this film being out there? Our dream result would be that people realize they can get involved and they can make a difference when it comes to climate change at the global level and watershed restoration at the local level. Uh, one of our big um, I don't know, ideas from the beginning was to put climate change in a different kind of narrative frame. It's not, oh my gosh, it's so big and huge. It's so scary. We can only be talking about a global carbon tax and, you know, CO2 emissions. It's bringing it to a level 
where people actually get inspired and excited to get involved and make a positive difference. And so that's where really the notion of thinking like a beaver is kind of our ending metaphor. If you think like a beaver, you're taking care of yourself. But in that very act of taking care of yourself, you're also trying to make the world better for everything else around you. You're being a positive presence in your community. You're giving back and you're helping other people and species out at the same time. And I think we're really seeing that with things like the resurgence in small farms, CSA, farmers markets, people getting in, interested in canning and knitting and building things and making things from scratch, this whole push towards local sustainable economies, you know, neighbors helping each other out. Um, we're seeing that bubbling up all over the place. So I think there is a desire. I think people are dissatisfied with this completely global, everything is electronic, everything plugs in, everything is the same and manufactured, who knows where. You know, I think people crave that authenticity and that connection and really want to revitalize these local networks that are really so much more enjoyable and so much more satisfying to be a part of than just being a consumer. It's being a producer. It's giving back. It's knowing that you matter within your little system. You're not just another number of some consumer who's just worth their money. So I think that's really what we hope for. People realize they can join their watershed council. They can go plant some trees along the creek with a school group. They can get involved with a school garden. You know, if there comes along a little beaver in their park downtown, they can jump in and say, no, you don't need to kill it. You can get a flow device and a beaver deceiver, and we can leave it here, and our kids can watch it, and we can all learn. Way over in Scotland, beavers were trapped into extinction nearly 300 years ago. But there's a project aimed at bringing them back. We spoke with Simon Jones from the Scottish Wildlife Trust. Tell me a bit about what happened to beavers in Scotland, like from a historical perspective. Where did they all go? Okay, well, uh, like many places, certainly in Europe, beavers were hunted to extinction here, uh, we believe about 300, 400 years ago. Uh, last real good evidence of beavers come from fur trading records in the Loch Ness area in the 16th century, uh, where we know furs, beaver furs have been traded with the low countries in Europe for hat making purposes. Uh, you know, and it was really, in some ways, the extinction of the animal in Europe led to the, you know, the, the movement in North America to go on exploit the resource over there because there's so little of it left across in Europe. But, we believe that probably the northern parts of uh, certainly Britain, certainly Scotland, had some of the last populations of beavers, but they were they were pretty much gone as a, a really you know a widespread species by the Middle Ages in most of Britain. Uh, there were a few places where the evidence suggests they might have lingered, but we've got there certainly weren't anything in any big numbers. So gone for a good 300, 400 years, which from a cultural perspective is obviously quite a long time. Uh, for, in terms of, you know, way beyond people's, you know, generations of people to be able to remember them. Uh, although there is some evidence in, uh, in the Gaelic-speaking parts of West Scotland, there are still, you know, a Gaelic name for beaver and some, some place names, etc. So maybe it existed in some point in historic memory, but pretty much for every, the vast majority of the population have been gone for years. And it's a it's a great surprise to many people that beavers were ever native here in the first place. Well, and I guess that leads to the obvious next question of 
why was it decided to try reintroducing them? Uh, well, I think it's been done in many places in, in Europe already over the past 30 or 40 years. And uh, I think it, maybe in some respect it started with the, the idea is, is it possible to restore a native species? Uh, but increasingly the rationale behind beaver reintroduction here is about what beavers do. It's about the fact that, you know, we it's the potential for a wetland ecosystem restoration project, and this is an animal that does it, you know, as an ecosystem engineer, keystone species, etc. So I, um, I'd say, you know, you go back long enough, probably now in Scotland, we'll probably go back 15, 20 years when the first discussions really started in terms of can we have... Uh, could we consider bringing the beaver back to Scotland? And for a long time, this was, you know, this was madness even talking about this. Uh, and, but as more countries have done it in Europe and populations have grown, and people have learned to live with beavers again, you know, where it'll be, I'm sure, very common <laughs> for you and for, you know, everybody through Canada and parts of the States as to what it's like to live with beaver populations. There's a lot of misinterpretation and factoids hear about what beavers will do, you know, many people think that beavers eat fish and uh, all sorts of bizarre stuff. So, you know, a long, long time scale of trying to address some of the simple questions about beavers, but accepting that, you know, there aren't going to be challenges living this animal again, you know, will require management on occasion and therefore we've got to be prepared to intervene if long term the beaver population lives alongside a human population in, in Scotland again, let alone in more built parts of the UK, further south down in England, etc. So uh, it's been quite a big journey here, really. And the Scottish Beaver Trial has has been the first ever formal reintroduction of the mammal anywhere in the UK. I mean, it's really been quite a big deal in conservation terms. It's uh, a lot of public attention has been focused on it. But also, in some ways, it is a it is a good illustration of the I wouldn't call it conflict, but you know, land use and land ownership is changing markedly here in, in the UK and in Scotland in terms of rural areas. You know, as farming stock levels decline in the north and west of of Britain, who owns the land and what happens to that land has become quite a politically charged subject. So the idea of bringing in a species as well that's capable of changing landscapes is pretty much guaranteed to draw an opinion either way from we're involved in that, you know. So it's as much about what the whole thing represents as to what it really means on the ground as well. Well, and the project, I understand, has been on the go for five years now, I think. Um, what kind of results have you been seeing? Uh, well... The, the project here yeah, is, a, is a sort of a seven-year process of which a year was all about introduction and getting things lined up and local community consultation and a five-year sort of field monitoring trial where the animals are out the ground and you look at how they're doing and their effects. And then within, we've just finished that five years. So basically last week was the end of that five years and then over the next 12 months, all the data and analysis will be looked at and boiled down and all the reports will be written and condensed into a final report, which will be given to the Scottish government in May next year. 
uh, and that's been done independently, that reporting by the government agency here, which is called Scottish Natural Heritage. Uh, so there's, you know, it's, there's a, a big uh, sort of set of factors and the fact that it needs to be seen, it needs to be an independent, independent scientific process, so, you know, it's judged on its evidence and its facts. But that being said, you know, people's opinions and perceptions are probably just as important, if not, not more important, to political decision makers at the end of the day. So we will actually won't really find out the real on-the-ground results until, from an independent point of view, until next year. Uh, our view is, as the sort of folks who've run the trial on the ground and the trial team, is that, you know, we've brought a bunch of beavers along, Eurasian beavers, We've released them in the wild and they've pretty much done what we expect them to do. They have established, the, you know, we only have a license for four families of beavers, four territories have been established, three of the four groups have bred, produced quite a lot of kits. We've had quite a lot of losses as well and dispersal, uh, which is a bit of a surprise, but you know, and that's why it's a trial process, it's a learning process. So the animals have built lodges, they've built dams, they've felled trees. You know, they've harvested vegetation and have had an impact. So in many ways, they've done what you would expect beavers to do. Next year, we'll find out whether the science, in terms of anything particularly new, in terms of, you know, research on the ground. We've done some really interesting stuff about the use of sense and, and the use of camera trapping, etc. Uh, but uh, I don't think there's been any huge groundbreaking bindings as such. Uh, and maybe we shouldn't be too surprised about that. But it's a process that we need to go through, you know, a legitimate process that follows all the IUCN guidelines on how you do a species reintroduction, because this is, you know, this is a big journey we're on here, and the Scottish Government have got to be presented with all the facts put on the tables, people's opinions and views, and then they can, you know, hand on heart and say, right, we've looked at as much stuff as we can here, and our opinion is this. Uh, whatever it will be, we understand the decision will probably be announced at some point at the, the end of, towards the end of 2015, yeah, so we've probably still got another nearly 18 months left to go before we, we know where things really go on, on the ground. What does your organization hope to see? I mean, And I'm talking 10, 20, 50 years into the future with this project having really gotten going. Yeah, well... The, the, the partners to the, the Scottish Beaver Trial, certainly, which is the Scottish Wildlife Trust and the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, you know, are committed. We want to see the return of the Eurasian beaver to Scotland. We want to see widespread populations. And we want to see that because we believe it will be, uh, you know, uh, valuable for wetland ecosystem restoration in, in Scotland. It will, it will help be a more Renaturalizing process, rewilding, if you want to call it in some way. So we we would like to see that. You know, we hope the Scottish government uh, agrees that that is possible, and that the Scottish people are willing to live with this animal again. And you know, in in the future, I would like to see further reintroduction projects in in Scotland. Uh, we also we would like to see that. We um, you know, healthy, thriving beaver populations, albeit beaver populations that we will need to manage admittedly uh, but that is you know good enough good enough reason that you know we can return a once native species back here it will have major impacts from ecosystem and biodiversity benefits uh, and you know 
that's what our job is. That's what we're about. We we view Beaver as a tool that would help help uh, help us be able to do that. So you know that's strength to our arm. That's what we're that's what we're hoping to do. We hope you're enjoying a beautiful Canada Day in your community. Remember to keep pets safe during firework shows and that drinking and driving is never acceptable. On behalf of everyone at APFA and Defender Radio, this is Michael Howie wishing you a happy Canada Day and reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.